I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, a podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I write about movies here at The Times, and a frequent topic of conversation among my colleagues on the entertainment staff is how tough it is for any of us to just keep up with the relentless wave of content between movies and TV. So this is a show about the stuff that we're watching and how we watch it. Today, we have the second of two episodes taking in the year that was in 2018. Now we get into TV. One scene is the sad relation of Hollywood's glamorous movie machine, In the modern era, TV has become a driving cultural force. From a live stream of Beyonce's Coachella performance to cable shows like Barry or Escape at Danamora, to the broad range of content available on streaming services, viewers had plenty of options on what to watch. So I'm joined by Times TV critics Lorraine Ali and Robert Lloyd and Times TV reporter Yvonne Villarreal to go over their top 10 lists and hear from them where they think the post-peak era of too much TV is taking us. Let's listen in. And today is going to be the second half of our conversation, our year-end conversations, sort of wrapping up the year that was for 2018. And today we're going to be focusing on the year in television. And so to join me in that conversation, I'm joined by my colleagues. Yvonne Villarreal. Robert Lloyd. And Lorraine Ali. And now I'm still something of a neophyte, like the world of television. I'm essentially coming at it as more or less a consumer. And so I've been reading some of the other like year end pieces and what people have been writing about the year that was in TV. And I was really struck by it seems like most people seem to think this was just kind of an okay year of television. It wasn't great. It wasn't terrible. Robert Lorraine, how do the two of you feel about that as kind of an assessment of television in 2018? Well, my short list for my top 10 was 30 items. So there's a lot of good stuff. I think maybe people are looking for some kind of narrative where they go, oh, this is the new Sopranos. This is the new Game of Thrones. This is the new whatever giant thing they have on their mind. But television is great in small, less important ways, too. I mean, important's not the right word, but less media-friendly ways. Uh, so there's just tons of great stuff out there. So I was not disappointed. That's funny, because my top 10 list was nine. <laughs> and I was, like, stretching it to 10. But that was of new shows, new series that had come out. I mean... And mine was of new things, too. So Oh, right. Okay, gee, see? Uh, here we are. Achiever. Yes. You know, I have to say, like... Maybe I'm just indecisive. <laughs> Last year, 2017, you know, there were series, Handmaid's Tale, Stranger Things, stuff that I really, really loved and like had to see. I didn't feel like there was as much of that this year, but I don't think that means that this year was a less creative or exciting year. I mean, a lot of other things were happening just in terms of like the very structure of the television industry of how we watch it, all that stuff blowing apart. So there was just like all this craziness going on underneath what arrived in your UNQ, you know? So I think that was just as interesting as the stuff we were watching. Well, tell me a little bit more about that. I I think now that we're sort of firmly ensconced in the post-peak TV era and whatever that might mean, it seems like one of the real demarcations of where we're at now is there's simply so much to watch, that because there are so many platforms, so many outlets, and so many shows being put on the air. Robert, how do you, as a critic, keep up? And how do you expect for audiences, just viewers at home, how are they supposed to navigate all this stuff? Every honest critic will tell you that they don't keep up. I mean, Lorraine and I split viewing for writing for what we cover, and so it's quite likely that there are things that Lorraine writes about that I don't see at all because I'm busy with all the things that I'm writing about, and there is so much. It's impossible. You can't 
keep up. Even in earlier days, you know, you find that as a writer, there's certain things that you gravitate toward. But I just think it's it's just a choice. And people feel these days responsible for knowing everything. But that's just not how people are. You shouldn't feel guilty because you haven't seen Killing Eve. Oh, yeah, no. Yes, you, you should. <laughs> I was just going to say you should totally you feel should guilty. feel guilty about Guilt, the shame. That. But, you know, okay, so you were saying, Mark, that, you know, here we are on the downside of peak TV. I don't know how you said it, but I would argue that that's not exactly true in that there was actually more original scripted series that came out this year than last year. I guess you could, you know, it's subjective. You could argue, was it as creatively exciting? But the point is, it's, we're still on an upward trajectory. And I don't think we're seeing the top of that right now. I think it's just fragmented in like a billion different ways right now. And we just don't know how stuff is going to shake out. You know, the human tendency is to be like, oh, it's the end of this really good thing. And whatever the unknown is that's next is never going to be as good. But like, we don't know that. Which brings me to one of my favorite shows, Black Lightning. No, I <laughs> Let me segue here. But Yvonne, from the standpoint of the industry, from the way that TV is sort of being made, packaged and put together, do you feel like that we're in sort of a post-peak TV moment? Like, what does it mean that the industry seems to be fragmenting so quickly and in such a sort of a like a shattered broad way? I mean, like when I talk to my friends who are not sort of in the industry and tracking it the way we do, I just hear a lot of there are so many shows on my have not watched list that I can't wait to get to during a break or something when I have a vacation. Like even for me who covers TV, the list of shows that I can't wait to watch during my break is like longer than my top shows. You longer know what I mean? Your break. <laughs> I have a spreadsheet ready. Um, yeah, like I want to watch Succession. I want to watch My Brilliant Friends. So it's kind of like there's all this stuff. And yeah, there's also the fatigue of I'm so tired. There's so many shows out there. And sometimes, I mean, I'm guilty of this too. People go to the stuff that they know, which is maybe still keeping up with the Kardashians or rewatching a show. But yeah, I think the conversations are different because people are watching different things. And yes, sometimes we're all watching the same thing together. But a lot of times it's like, oh, I still need to catch up on that. Don't tell me about that. And so it's just people are watching at a different pace. Lorraine, what do you look for in a TV show? Like, what is it that you want from the shows that you find yourself most responding to? There isn't a particular type of show that I look for. I mean, I, I would just say they all hit on different levels. You can have something that's a political documentary series that really captures topical issues that are on your mind. Or it can be something that, like the end of the world on Netflix is in one of my top 10. And it's following two teens that run away, two misfits. And it really, really captures that sort of feeling of alienation and angst from that age that really struck a chord with me. I have a kid that age. I remember being that age. And it's sort of like, I just hadn't seen anything that really struck me in the way that that did. But then I also have Escape and Denimora on there. And I just love that series, which is Showtime, starring Benicio Del Toro. And uh, Patricia Arquette. I, oh, my God. It's so amazing. Many of the things I picked on my top 10 took real stories that were from the news and dramatized them. But what it did that was unusual, and maybe we should touch on this as a larger subject, is that it actually told a really comprehensive story from episode to episode. And it had a 
pacing that worked and it actually had an ending. And I think that is a problem that we have right now with the proliferation of so much scripted material. Stuff gets started and nobody knows how to finish it. This ran expertly, like it was crafted over years and years, which I doubt it was. But I loved it for that reason alone. I know I think that there's actually only one program that's on both of your respective lists, and that would be HBO's Barry, which, of course, stars Bill Hader as a hitman who comes to Los Angeles for a job, follows his target to an acting class, and falls in love with acting. Are the two of you surprised to have that be the show that overlaps? Lorraine, what is it about Barry that you like? You know, I was a little surprised when I saw that, because initially when I started watching Barry, I was like, meh, no, it's good. You know, it started out a little slow for me, and I thought, do I really need to see another show about acting or about L.A.? Or um, Hitman. Or, yeah, or Hitman, exactly. But, you know, it really, from episode to episode, it really, again, it was one of the few series out there that was so cohesive, and it really built upon itself, and it was just smart about its comedy. But it was also the way that it sort of depicted L.A. I did love, and I'm from here, you know. A lot of people get that wrong. I kind of loved how they did that. You know, I don't know. It was one of those quirkier picks. It wasn't necessarily something I would normally gravitate toward. I kind of didn't want to like it at first. I'm not a huge Bill Hader fan, I, you know, but it really grew on me. And part of that is probably Henry Winkler. I've got to say, he plays the acting coach in that, and he is astounding. And once that started to build, and then the whole mobsters, I don't know, are they Chechenian, whatever they're supposed to be. Yeah. All of that was so great. I don't know. I just kind of loved it for those very non-deep reasons. <laughs> Robert, what was it you responded to? Well, I think Bill Hader is extraordinary in it. I think he's just a really great actor, but who's the a lot of the circumstances of the things he's been in, like SNL, kind of mask just his range. But what I loved about it was that nothing in it was exactly what you would have expected from seeing it on paper. Everything was just twisted slightly or a little deeper. The emotions are real. You really feel for him. He's reaching for something slightly beyond him, and you feel for that, even though he's caught in this sort of horrible situation, which he, I mean, he's a hitman, but he's also being manipulated by his uncle, who's his sort of rep, and there's all this stuff going on. But every character really opens up into something surprising in it, and I just felt it. I felt really involved in his journey um, in a way that could have been, again, like Lorraine, it's the sort of thing I would see on paper and go, "Mm, I don't know. But it was beautifully executed and and really felt and really smart on on every level. One thing about Barry that really caught me by surprise was how it handled your own self-identity, how people see you, and how when you try and make a change in your life or break out of whatever career rut, whatever that is you're in, the challenges you face. And they did it. Oh, no, this guy's a hitman. He wants to become an actor. Sounds absurd. But all the subtleties inside of that were things you could totally relate to. But it strikes me that one to hear all of you say that you didn't think you would like it. It took a few episodes to get going. And I know like sort of the back half of the series is when people really latched onto it. That's rough. I mean, because in the way people watch TV right now, and I you hear this so much, oh, it gets good around episode four. Or, oh, the second season is when it gets good. And who has time for that? Like, is it difficult to have the simple patience to let a show evolve and become itself, even over the course of, I mean, that means you had to give Barry about 90 minutes to find its footing. Yeah, and you know, normally that would be 
like a deal breaker for me, right? But the thing about Barry is that there was this underlying thing that kept you there. And I almost, I know it's my job to analyze it and break it down, but I almost didn't want to do that. I was like, I don't want to like deconstruct this and, you know, pick it apart and figure out what's working because it's working and this rarely works. (laughs) Just leave it alone and go with it. And I did. Well, it also helps when the time is less of a commitment. Like I had trouble getting into succession because I was just kind of like rich white people and their problems like sorry I don't care but then everyone was saying it gets so good and it's on my list of things to come back to because I'm kind of like okay because it it was an hour commitment each week and I'm kind of like I don't have the time but something like Barry it's kind of like okay I can get through this and something that I really liked about Homecoming too is that here's this drama coming at us in 30 minute chunks it makes it palatable and makes it less daunting and you're able able to commit to something like that. But also there's we live in a world now where, you know, enough people have told you Yeah. Oh, you should really see Barry, you should, you know, hang on, that you go in with not with expectation necessarily, but a kind of openness to it because you've been prepped for it by living in a world where people talk about television all the time. And now I'm gonna have to ask the two of you a little bit about some shows that are not on your lists. And the first one, and Lorraine, you give this one a mention, is simply this the second season of Atlanta. And so- One of the things I find intriguing about it, relating to what you've been talking about, is that you never knew what you were going to get week to week. The show from episode to episode would change so drastically and yet somehow mystically ended up with a major theme by the end of the season. Like what had seemed very disassociated turned out it was about a single thing all along, which was sort of like the characters' relationships to themselves, each other, and Paperboy's sort of burgeoning fame and how that sort of reflected on all of them. But also, just simply the link, famously the Teddy Perkins episode, which was broadcast without commercials and was an odd length. I think it was 41 or 42 minutes. And so I remember watching that and being spellbound by that episode because you were like, when's the commercial? How long is this? What is happening to me? For the two of you, what, I guess I'm, maybe I'll ask why Atlanta didn't exactly make your top shows list. And what do you think about what it's trying to do simply with the form of television? I feel like Lorraine is like, you could see her processing right now. Are you regretting I, it? Uh, no, okay. I, no, I'm not. I, it would have been, but we, we focused on new, new shows, shows, right? Which arguably you could say that. Atlanta, every time an episode airs, it's a new show. I mean, I suppose you could have bent it that way, but it would have been right at the top if we had been looking at returning shows. You know, I love how you're like, what is happening to me? Because it is like that. It's it's not like this isn't TV. This is what is this? Well, another show that we mentioned earlier, a lot of people were talking about this year was Killing Eve, which was a new show broadcast on BBC and is now on available on Hulu that starred Sandra Oh and Jodie Comer as um, how I guess I can't I'm not even sure I can describe the show properly. Do you want to how, how would you describe I it? I mean, it's like a cat and mouse thriller, except like in addition to all that, you've got like female representation like two female leads that are just such a joy to watch so it's the show from phoebe waller bridge it stars sandra as a security operative and yeah by the end of it you're like i mean who am i rooting for what do i want to happen and just the performances are amazing 
Well, Robert, I was so excited to see on your list the show, the bisexual uh, Hulu program, which was created by and stars Desiree Akhavan, mm-hmm. whose film The Miseducation of Camera Post won the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival back in January. So that's, I think, a fantastic example of the kind of crossover that can happen and where someone, especially I think for younger kind of emerging artists, they can really find a career and, and essentially find a sustainability to their career th- through television. Well, you know, TV was traditionally TV was the breeding ground for for a lot of people that became really well-known film directors, Robert Altman and Arthur Penn, and a very, very long list of people began in television. And there's a lot of benefits if you're a filmmaker. You can't normally make 10-hour movies if you're making movies for theaters. People aren't going to sit through it, but they'll watch your 10-hour series. And so you'll be able to sort of stretch in ways that you find interesting. And then there's just a lot of money that's being thrown around right now at people, so... But tell me, also more, helpful. tell me more about the, the bisexual. What is it that you liked about that show in particular? There's a kind of a calm reality to it that I enjoyed. I like shows often that aren't going after big effects the whole time and that do their work in sort of smaller, subtler packets and then break out every once in a while into a scene that really explodes with color. And there's an intimacy to it that's interesting the whole way through. The acting is really lovely. And I think I just felt like I'd been somewhere. A lot, of, uh, a lot of Western television is still very glossy in ways that are sometimes you hear European filmmakers or English filmmakers or whatever talking about how they wish their shows were more American. But there's a kind of glossiness to a lot of American productions that seems to me to put a kind of a wall between what's real and what's artificial. And there's a kind of a tradition of art filmmaking that's more humble, maybe is the right word, where you just feel like you are in somebody's life in a way that's not fictional. Yvonne, are there any shows that we haven't talked about yet that you would want to be sure that we sort of mention in a year-end conversation? Uh, there's three. <laughs> or there's four. Uh, the final season of The Americans was so well executed. Pose, I think, was something to behold. I mean, yes, it had the sort of Ryan Murphy camp, but seeing those performances and seeing people that we don't usually see on TV and see them in lead roles, trans people, is it was, I thought, something that was important. Um, One day at a time, the topics that they're able to cover on that show. And like, it's just such a heartfelt show that especially now is a nice thing to consume. And I would say sharp objects too. I mean, the the type of female representation that we got on that show, I thought was striking. And now, Lorraine, is there, are there any other shows from your list that we haven't talked about you'd want to be sure that we do? I know we've talked about it before on the show, but I I am always so struck by your support of Dietland. And I've said this to you before. I'm not surprised that show was canceled. I'm surprised that show ever got on the TV in the first place. Like, it's so shocking, and it does so many things that are so subversive to the form of television and culturally that it's, to me, astonishing that it even exists at all. That's why I loved it so much, because it was pushing out at so many boundaries and crossing so many lines. It's looking at sort of the cultural war on American women, from impossible beauty standards to how rape is dealt with, to uh, weight, everything, right? But it's doing it in a dark comedy. And I had just never seen things like that tackled 
so aggressively with such candor and, you know, with comedy that wasn't tempered. So and apparently it wasn't tempered enough because I think it actually scared men. I really think that's what happened. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, like, do you think you would have been as surprised if it wasn't a female sort of centric type story? Like if it was like something with men doing these or having this sort of weird setup? Whatever it is, you know, Ray Donovan, the dead hooker mm-hmm. in the room, what, all those things I feel like we've been tromping through that exactly. with men for decades, yes. right? Particularly in the last 10 to 15 years. And, you know, Dietland was finally like flipping the switch and things reversed, right? But I do think the themes inside of it of women terrifying the patriarchy were exactly why the show is not on the air anymore. And that's why I put it in my top 10. I thought it was brilliant. Other shows that I would just like to bring up that weren't in my top 10 because they were second season or third season shows. Again, I mentioned Atlanta, Handmaid's Tale second season. I love Atypical um, on Netflix. Story about a family with an autistic son. But just as a family drama and comedy, it's so well done and it's so well written and it's so moving and funny. Not soppy at all. I love that. Um, So I kind of want to throw that in. And so with that, we're going to look towards wrapping up. Wait, 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 wait. What? What's your pick? Little Drummer Girl? I would pick Atlanta and Little Drummer Girl. Those would be my picks. So now The Real is going to take a couple weeks off for the holidays. And so we can go into deep altitude training to get us ready for the Golden Globes, Academy Award nominations, Sundance Film Festival leading on into the Oscars. We are going to be training. We are going to be ready. We will be back. And so for LA Times Studios on The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Thanks for listening.